So welcome everybody to the CG podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Um, please subscribe and join us for future episodes. Um, my name is Ed Dawson-Taylor. We are very lucky to have with us today Haz Dalul, who I'm going to introduce in a second. Um, just one quick announcement before we get going today. Um, CG Pro as the school, we do offer classes to learn Unreal and we have just become a, an Unreal authorized training center. So that's our big fancy news for today. We're very excited about that, about partnering with Epic and um, more about that to come. Anyway, get that out of the way. Um, Has, thank you very, very much for joining us. Uh, Has is a, a wonderful individual, very prolific storyteller. Has has been uh, had an incredible career so far, spanning all kinds of different industries from games to high-end visual effects, going back to big movies in back in the day, like uh, 10,000 BC and working on, on the top end of, of uh, movie visual effects. Um, Nat has since then become an independent filmmaker and has been a real pioneer in the world of uh, real-time filmmaking. So I'm going to leave it there and has let you fill in the gaps because I don't want to go on too long with your intro, but it's super, super cool for you to join us today. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks so much. It's super, like, super excited to be here. You know, thanks for having me. And your, the intro is pretty good. I don't really know how I could top that, actually. That was a pretty good intro. So, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, welcome. Um, thanks for uh, for joining us. And, yeah, at the beginning of these, I, I'd love to hear a little bit about you and kind of how you got into this, because it's. I think it's always easy to look at uh, a, a long career such as yours with all of those successes and, and think, like, that's how it began, but I'm sure you you came from uh, um, some point where you were inspired and wanted to get into the industry or some industries. And I'd love to hear a little bit about you know what yeah. how it began for you and and what inspired you to get into all of this. Uh, absolutely, you know I get asked this a lot, and I always it always goes back to me being 12 years old when my my dad came home with a VHS rental of um, Blade Runner, put that on. I'm like whoa what is this and obviously being 12 i didn't really get all this the you know the nuance and subtext of 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 the movie then like you know i became you know later on i read the book the android theme electric sheet then watched the movie a million times i just knew i wanted to do something where i was and i didn't know the word back then was world building but i wanted to be involved in world building i wanted to create stuff so i would you know you know as a 12 year old i'll create paper mache of stuff and i'll get my dad's vhs camera when he's not looking and just like just filming stuff making little mini short movies and get my brothers involved and you know and i was just trying to recreate what i was seeing on tv and then flash forward i'm in college and I had to pick, you know, like A-levels, right? You know, back in the day, we had A-levels. And I um, those. <laughs> yeah, do you remember those? <laughs> and yeah, I came from a, yeah, my, my parents are from an island called Mauritius, uh, but we still have the Asian sensibilities, right? Um, and I remember I was picking like art, design, fine art. And my parents were like, whoa, that's too much art in the A-level here. You got to pick something that is like, you know, that we feel a little bit more comfortable career-wise. So I'm um, like, damn. So I picked um, computer programming, and I picked um, design and tech. And when you kind of merge the two together, you end up with video games. So, you know, I ended up going to university, did a, media, uh, did a course for media technology where my final year dissertation at City University in London was to make a, a demo video game level. You know, I was using Flash, Macromedia Flash back then, you know, Macromedia Flash, Director, Dreamweaver, using Java and all of those coding. And everyone else in my uni class by the way we're not making video games they thought i was gonna like flop they go this guy's crazy he doesn't want a degree we're gonna go make databases you know for oracle and, and ibm i actually came out with a 2-1 at based on a video game level and i landed my first job at a company called davis studios on a playstation one title called motocross mania and you know back then video games were very very boutique right so like you know you get 3d it was 3d studio back then it wasn't like 3d studio max but 3d studio you know r4 release you're going to dos to load it up and um you know all your textures are like 64 by 64 and you tile them and what was interesting was that you know like that was the beginning of my independent spirit you know in terms of that's what i end up using like you know decades later to make movies because you're limited with texture memory video memory you're limited with polygons you got to cram all that in the vram of playstation one 
And so my job as an artist was to, how do you create some, something that looks good for very minimal resources? If you think about it, that's independent filmmaking. How do you create something good on minimal resources, right? Um, but the thing what was really interesting was I wasn't really making so much the game graphics. I was doing what you call the, the cutscenes, the cinematics, right? The stuff that says not game footage. So, you know, I got into that and I started like, to realize, oh my God, I'm making movies here. You know, I didn't go to film school right so and to me like oh to, to be a film director i have to go to film school so my plan was always go through the games industry save up some money and then put myself through film school that was the that was essentially the plan but what then i end up working for companies like codemasters and kuju entertainment and working on and, then, and the consoles kept getting better ps2 got better video memory gamecube dreamcast um and i start to realize i'm actually kind of making movies here but on a computer this is like this is amazing. Like, you know, I'm able to tell a story, light, you know, light the shots, move characters around, be involved in voiceover sessions, which was like amazing. Um, but it still, for me, felt like I was a bit of a fraud. I'm like, I sh really should work in film, film. And back then, the games industry and the film industry, there was a level of snobbery, right? And if you came from games like, oh, you make video games, this is, this is the film industry. You know, we use Alias Wavefront here. You know, we render stuff that takes days on a render farm. You know, we have motion blur and anti-aliasing and all that stuff. <laughs> uh, you know? And so I remember applying for sending my show reel out to NPC, DNEG, you know, like you know, frames. So there's only a few of them in Soho back then. And, uh, and there was no schools or facilities, by the way, that teach visual effects you know i think there was the first iteration of escape and it was like super mm. expensive but a lot of it was like you start as a runner you know you assist on things like silicon graphics workstation you know those purple boxes you know do roto yep. and stuff and i remember sending my show reel out and i was getting rejections so many rejections and i'm like i don't get it i've got a i've got a show reel here with some really cool car chase sequences all cg and that was the problem i was applying in visual effects with a full cg reel and i remember like one one um I mean, someone H I M P C at the time go, listen, you know, one of the lead compositors really liked your reel because he's a gamer, but he's not going to give you a job, but he'll give you some feedback. I'm like, yeah, I'll have some feedback. And it was basically the feedback was visual effects is about marrying, you know, CG with live action. And it's all about smoke and mirrors. If you go off and shoot something on a, on a DV tape or something to show that you have the ability to at least photographically make something look as close as you can, then, you know, you can reapply it. And that's what I did. I got my DV camera, you know, the mini tape, and just reshot movies that I loved growing up, Blade Runner being one of them. And I sent my show reel in like a year and a half later. And the same visual effects supervisor was there. And he saw me because, hey, you know, <laughs> you listened. Okay, come in and have a job. Um, you'll have to start as a rotoscope artist. I'm like, oh, but, but I'm like senior CG guy, at, like Codemasters. Like, that's a serious pay drop. Goes, yeah, well, everyone starts as a roto and you work your way up. And I remember them asking me, and this is the HR lady, was like, well, where do you want to work at, in, in place of NPC? What do you want to do? I'm like, well, I can do it all. I can light, I can comp, I can do it. And they go, yeah, this is the film industry visual effects, especially a facility at NPC. Um, pick, <laughs> pick a department. Use your alternative. <laughs> yeah, pick one and stick with it. And I'm like, oh my God. What? And I realized I love photography. I love the idea of bringing the final pixels together so i became a compositor so i started as roto on 10,000 bc sweeney todd then became you know then they give you like small little shots to do like the odd cleanup and then you become a compositor and i was using shake back then so that was my compositing tool you know in video games i would use something called combustion and that's where i started using two and a half d so you can imagine when you came out i'm like oh my god two and a half d was this is amazing um but i think my big break in visual effects where i really felt like oh my god I feel like this is a version of film school was when I got to do previews on this tiny movie called the dark Knight uh, by this small director called Christopher Nolan. And um, I I'll remember like, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was only like four people in the team. And, um, and my friend Faraz Hamid, who's this amazing previous supervisor got me the job because they said, we need a compositor that's able to like take the previous renders or you know, play blasts and comp them onto the live action plate so we can get temps out so that Nolan and everyone could watch them. And this was the early version, what we now call post-fits. Mm. So um, not saying I coined it, but I'm just saying I was like one of the first compers to be doing post-fits. But I learned so much about editorial, so much about pacing, storytelling, how shots are framed, understanding how camera lens work, and but understand from a narrative point of view how you know, every decision you make from color timing affects the story. And I was like, this is, this is film school, you know? And that's what I say, like previs essentially is what kind of made me into the filmmaker I am today. Cause I got to physically move cameras, 
with the real lens world data as you would in a real world, but on a computer. And then later on, I became a visual effects supervisor. So I ended up working for a company called Jellyfish Pictures, um, which was the first place that actually gave me the opportunity to become a VFX supervisor. And I worked on a show called America, the Story of Us, which ended up winning some Emmys and stuff. Um, and that show was interesting because that was my first experience in the world of television where you got to see these people called showrunners and executives. And you start to see the difference between television and films where, you know, usually I, you know, when I'm working with other directors, the directors are the rock stars in the film. But in television, the director's super important, but they're kind of like guest directors. The showrunners and the writers are the rock stars in television. They lead the show. It's a writer's medium. So I remember spending a lot of hours on like, you know, on several shows and one for the BBC called Planet Dinosaur, which is a full CG show. And I remember just sitting there, just really soaking in all the information, trying to figure out, you know, your job as a VFX supervisor is really trying to figure out the impossible for very little money and very little time. That's essentially what my job was as a VFX soup. But I'll always still be composite. I always have my laptop. I'll be doing slap comps, showing it to the director, showing it to you know, the, the, the senior VFX soup and say, hey, look, you know, this is what we're doing. And I think I've got a reputation of being hands-on as a VFX soup. So I ended up direct, you know, being involved to like second unit direct. So a lot of the heavy CG scenes. And I just built up my career into directing, going through these high-level management roles in visual effects. I think the highest role I ever got was VFX producer. And this was at a company called Prime Focus, where they had an office mm -hmm. in London where they worked on movies like Dread, but I was hired to look after television. So um, a really amazing uh, visual effect producer called Pierce Hampton hired me to basically run the television division. And that was very interesting because now I'm pure management. Can't open Nuke because all I've got is spreadsheets in front of me. But what was really interesting about that job was you're dealing with numbers every day, but you're still problem solving. Like, how do you crunch those numbers to still have the best talent because talent costs money. How do you bring the best talent on? How do you convince your client that you, I know you said you're going to have 20 shots, but you come back from the shoot. Now the shot count is 45, but the budget hasn't moved and the schedule hasn't moved. We need to have a conversation. And usually they won't give you more money. You're lucky if you get to overbid, um, you know, or do rebids. Um, and the schedule most certainly didn't move, especially in television. You have transmission dates, you know, the TX dates. It's not. So your job as a producer is to how do you be creative with those numbers? How do you figure it out? How do you? And then I learned the art of diplomacy comes in very useful when you're dealing with studios. And um, and while I was a VFX producer, I decided, you know what? I'm looking at so much numbers. I'm missing the creativity. Um, so I started making short films. And one of the first live action short films I did was Project Kronos, which was in 2013, if I remember correctly. Yes. And that was basically me trying to get something out of my system. I had like, I don't know, 800 quid, 800 pounds saved in my little filmmaking piggy bank, you know, after, you know, after your freelancing gigs. And um, I had my MacBook Pro and I had um, Adobe After Effects and Adobe Premiere. And I'm like, how do I make a short science fiction film for very little money just to get a story out? And by that, you know, by that time, I've been surrounded with so many editors in the documentary world. I love the documentary world. I was in the documentary world as a VFX producer, but also I love science fiction. And I've got visual effects compositing backgrounds. So I decided I'm going to just download every single footage there is on the NASA website because it's available. So I just downloaded, downloaded, spent all night just downloading stuff. And then I had some money and I hired a bunch of actors to pretend to be scientists. And we made a fake documentary about sending a human brain out into space. And somehow consciousness made first contact with aliens on the subconscious level. And it was all done in a fake documentary way. Released it, put it on Vimeo, didn't think much of it. I cut a trailer, by the way, first just to put out. That trailer went frigging viral. I was getting phone calls from like management companies, agents in LA, who you rep by? Do you want to be representation? This is, and it was because it was done at a time when science fiction bubble was really starting to like, you know, explode. You know, the things like District 9 trailer came out and science fiction was just massive or starting to grow. And so it was the right timing. And all of a sudden, cerebral science fiction was a big thing ever since, you know, because Neil Blomkamp's uh, District 9. But also had very similar tropes to Contact, which is my other science, my other favorite movie, the Robert Zemeckis one. So Hollywood Reporter covered it, Variety covered it. There was a bidding war. And bear in mind, I'm completely new to this, completely tired working crazy hours in visual effects, like to make a short film and get all of this tension was like overwhelming. And eventually I signed up a manager called Scott Glasgow and, um, and my Hollywood 
journey began and end up being oh. hired by Fox uh, to write for them, being hired by Paramount to write. Guess what? I'm not a freaking writer. I'm a director <laughs> that writes at a necessity. I never call myself a writer, but um, I they wanted directors that could write. You know, they wanted like the Gareth Edwards, the Neil Blomkamps. So my manager was like, just tell him you can write and just read this book called Save the Cat. Just read that book and you'll be fine. <laughs> and essentially, that's pretty much how I learned to write script. But you know, today, I wouldn't say I'm a writer. I just write the first draft. Um, and then flash forward to 2015. There was something wrong with the picture. Why am I not making my big blockbuster movie? Why am I not making a film? Why am I not behind the camera? I'm still working in visual effects. I was a visual effects producer on a TV show called Pole Dark. And I was, you know, consulting on various shows. I'm like, this is insane. Like, my CV looks great. You now, I'm, you know, I was writing for Fox still. I was still, I, I had my deal for Project Kronos, which got optioned, by the way, got extended. But here's the problem the project I was writing with Hollywood, which is the adaptation of my short film, Project Kronos, the one that went viral, it's been about $30 million to make. Who the hell is going to give you $30 million back then, let alone now, right? So when it came to do what you call turnaround, it's a process of Hollywood called turnaround, where they re-option your script. I remember speaking to the guys, the lovely producers at a company called Bender Spink, which no longer exists anymore. They were like, um, yeah, well, you know, here's another X amount, and we'll just put it through development. I'm like, but what are we doing? Are we going to make this thing or what? Because you know, there's only so much how many years I can keep looking at a script because yeah, we'll just put it through development. I'm like, look, you know, I, I need to make something. So I'm not going to re-option it. I'm going to take back the rights. I'm just going to go off and make it the way I'm going to make it. And they go, yeah, go for it. You know, just FYI, you can't make the movie that we paid you to write. I'm like, don't worry. I'm not going to attempt to make that $30 million movie. So I went back and um, I remember talking to my partner and she was like, well, what are you going to do? I'm like, I need to make a freaking movie. So I kind of looked at like, <laughs> okay, this is, disclaimer here do not try this at home unless you really want to but i looked at my savings i'm like <laughs> i'm like should i buy a house or should i make a movie buy a house make a movie and i'm like you know what i'm just gonna make the movie so i had some money left uh, for my savings and um had enough to go through and i'm like you know what i'm gonna make the feature version of what made the short film work which was the fake documentary you know at the time there was quite a few documentaries that were coming out that had that kind of mockumentary vibe i'm like screw it, i'm gonna make it and you know if i screw up at least i know it was down to me as opposed to waiting for someone to give you the green light which was take forever and it's a catch-22 because you know my agents you know i was rep by um i was you know courted by the agents wme at the time which is a fairly big agency my manager was like yeah you're in this weird situation where everyone loves your work everyone wants to you know, hire you to you know develop stuff, but no one's greenlighting your stuff because you're still a first-time director. Doesn't matter how many short films you want, doesn't matter how many awards or Vimeo staff picks you've got on your short films, you're still a first-time director, and it's still it's um you know it's a confidence thing for the finances. So I went off and made my first movie, you know, which is the beyond. And um, yeah, that was through the whole 2016, 2017, finished it. Um, it was released January 2018. But here's the thing. If you look at my MDB, you're going to see there's two movies that came out at the same time, which is the second movie, 2036 Origin Unknown, with, with the lovely Katie Sackhoff. And um, people thought, what, did you make both those movies together? I'm like, no. So here's the thing. Do you remember when my short went viral? Let's get all the phone calls from all the agents. Well, the question they ask you always is, what else have you got? So when you go to the right. meetings, they're like, what else have you got? And I'm like, uh, just making stuff. I can say this now because it's like years gone by. But I was literally <laughs> just making stuff up. I'm like, well, I've got this movie that, you know, where we make first contact on this other planet. We've got this other movie where these robots take over. And I've got this one movie where this weird cube appears on Mars. And the story is about this mission controller who forms a relationship with this AI to try and figure out what is this cube. And you realize it's it c contains the answers to why we exist in the universe. You know, that it was like Space Odyssey 2001 meets um contact and at the time no one wanted to make a mars movie like no one right. they're like yeah it's a cool idea but you know anything with mars is jinx you know last days of mars you know red planet mission to mars then jinx and then this like amazing director ridley scott made a film called the martian and all of a sudden yeah. hey do you have that script to do with mars <laughs> yeah i know we passed but do you have it do you want to do another rewrite and that's that's hollywood for you right yep. so when i was in post-production on my first movie to be on that's when the second movie got greenlit. 
And that's how right. I ended up getting two movies. And yeah, I remember, you know, we we're trying to get a big name star because obviously once because you know, the budget for my first movie was and it was about 200k. You know, obviously I financed most of it. And then we had tax breaks from the UK and then other small investors came in. And that's the thing, you know, financiers will only put money in if they see you've got skin in the game. And <laughs> how it worked was, you know, I was editing the beyond and this investor was like this is really good. Like who finances? I'm like, yeah, you're looking at the only financier, the director, the editor, the producer, everything. Um, the only thing I didn't do was act and do the music. They go, well, how much do you need to finish it? And he gave me a lot of money to finish it. Um, Cause he was like, well, yeah, you've taken most of the risks so as an investor. I feel like, you know, I don't mind taking that risk with you. You know, it was a very small amount he gave, but still it helped get the movie over the line. And that ended up getting the beyond end up being released January, 2018 number two in the iTunes charts next to Blade Runner 2049, which to me is like, ah, wow. it was fate because my first, my yeah, full circle. Blade Runner. Right, exactly. Yeah. But also next to Wonder Woman. And here's the thing. The movie's got no big name stars. It's a fake documentary. Yet it was one of the highest selling movies in 2018. We have recouped our entire investment and made profit in the second quarter of the sales report. So just for those listeners who don't know how it works, usually you make a movie, you sell it for a distributor. So our distributor is Graphitas Ventures. They had worldwide rights and they put it on iTunes and they sell it to all the various places. And every quarter you get a report saying, this is how many places have bought the movie. This is the commission the sales company has taken. And this is how much is left for you. Now, I got a lot back. Now, the reason for that, and this is another little tip, I would say anyone who wants to get into the filmmaking world independently is do your research. I spoke to a lot of filmmakers before decided to put my own money and make an independent film because they know I'm like, yeah, this is my own money and my missus is going to kick me out the house if I don't get that back <laughs> pretty soon. Um, and, um, and a lot of the directors I spoke to were like, look, as independent filmmakers, you can literally get shafted because they know you're an independent artist and sales companies, no, I'm not bad mouthing sales companies, but their model is to inflate everything. So they have to make money. They're a sales company. That's what they do. They sell, right? Um, so I remember we had tons of sales companies say, hey, you know, we'll give you an MG, a minimum guarantee. You know, hey, it's kind of like a book royalty advance, right? We'll right. give you this amount. And some of them give them really good high ones. But you look at the company and you're like, oh, they do a lot of high-end movies. Your movie's got no big name star. It's going to be at the bottom of the catalog. It's not going to get the attention it deserves. The other thing also is marketing. They really get your marketing. They go, yeah, we'll take it to all the festivals for you. We'll, we'll create a post and trailer for you. And you're like, oh, this is cool. Okay. And then when the film gets released, you'll never make a money, you'll never make a penny back because they're still recouping their marketing costs, which yep. seems to go on forever. And again, not disrespectful to sales company because a lot of my close friends work at sales companies, we love them. But I think as independent filmmakers, especially if you're going to self-finance or you know, indie finance it, be aware of how sales companies work. So for us, we cut our own trailer, we did our own posters. So we covered the cost of that. What we gave commission for was for them to get it onto the, platform because we have no idea on how to do that and then seven months later seven months later netflix comes in because hey we, we, we're trying to <laughs> update our sci-fi indie catalog here um you don't have a streaming deal and you know on netflix so they gave us yeah a one-off fee because that's how netflix works it's a one-off fee which more than covered and some and um, we end up being on netflix and it was trending at number two so wow I don't know if that's luck or combination of timing, but I think a lot of it is creating content and knowing your market. Yeah, I'm not saying I made a movie for the audience because obviously I made a movie that I wanted to watch myself, but I think yeah. it's important to know your audience a little bit by looking at things that are doing well. So, you know, obviously I referenced Noah Blomkamp of his grounded science fiction, but like there was a lot of movies like Blumhouse. Blumhouse is a big model for me because I looked at Blumhouse who's doing like you know, Paranormal Activity and, you know, all of those kind of found footage type films. And I realized, well, what's working for that? Clearly there's an audience for that. So if you market it correctly, you can really tap in the right audience. Your sales can be able to sell your movie. So yeah, so that's my independent film world. That's the long answer to your whatever question it was. <laughs> yeah yeah no it's a great a great answer and it's a, you've taken us on a, a real journey there through like there were some very inspiring moments in that just from the very beginning what inspired you to get into it in the first place which was seeing things that you liked and then following that lead and and, and chasing that um and that seemed it seems like I'm i'm curious throughout the whole thing whether you had kind of like a vision of where you've got to now or whether it was kind of moments along the way that 
you you had uh, choices and you thought, okay, I would prefer to do this or certain things spoke to you sure. more. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. Like, obviously, you know, when you're in when you're at college or something, you you wish that like, I want to be that guy, right? And it's um, you know, it's a you try to get there, but then the older you get, you know, as you get into your like your mid twenties and your mid thirties, you start to realize, okay, let's focus. <laughs> let's be yeah. realistic here. What have we done and what can we do to get there? Um, but yeah, I always knew I wanted to have the flexibility to be creative. And I knew to, in order to do that, you have to play the system in a way. So I knew I wouldn't be able to call the shots like I am today unless I went and went in the trenches and really worked my ass off and really w- learned from other executives and put up with a lot of stuff as well to, in order to, yep. to earn your stripes kind of thing. Um, but I think for me, like, you know, one example is like when Origin Unknown came out, the, they released the mini trailers for it. And there was one trailer showing Katie and a Robot having a, having a moment. And it was, that was my homage to Flight the Navigator because I love Flight the Navigator. Me and too. someone, yeah, right. And um, someone at Disney saw it and reached out to a manager because, hey, listen, we're, we're looking for new directors with quite heavy live action stroke CG. It's a CG character and live action kids um, can be, can has be put forward. And I, I remember like getting the email saying, you know, this is a, this is a TV show involving a talking car and some kids. Um, very similar to Herbie. That's what I'm going to say. And um, <laughs> another great and, movie. Yeah. And um, I, instead of replying back and saying, oh, I would love to, I'm like, it's not every day Disney asks you to pitch on something. Right. So I told my manager, give me a week, right. Tell him I'm interested, but a week for me to send my stuff over. And I just, I did a 50 page pitch deck. I cut my own previews. I cut a mini trailer. This is all based on a one pager, by the way, because I really wanted to like, this is my only chance to, you know, if I, if I fail, at least I know I gave it my all with something like Disney and the guys at Disney were like, this is freaking way much of what we asked for, but this is cool. But quick thing, we haven't even designed the car yet. So how do you know what the car looked like? I'm like, I just kind of took creative inspiration from reading. And they're like, well, that's kind of, kind of director we're looking for. Someone that's able to like go further and, you know, really, share their imagination and the fact that i was doing previs i was animating they're like oh my god you've animated this whole car chase sequence we weren't even going to write an intensive car chase sequence but now the writers have seen it they'll like you to come over into into, into la to Bur- the in burbank in the disney building and and just have a conversation with the writers and i remember going there this is like you know mid-january you know as um as and the beyond was released and i go into the disney building and open the door and there's like a whole massive table, tons of executives. And I, obviously I thought I walked into the wrong room, obviously. And um, <laughs> you know, being the bumbly Brit. And um, I turn around and I go, this is the right room. Goes, yeah, yeah, this is the fast lane. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they heard this British directors come in and so they all came down from all the floors. I'm like, ah! And basically I literally had to pitch my heart out. And it was tough because creatively everyone loved what they were seeing. They could see, oh, this guy works in visual effects. This is going to look great. But I had no track record directing television. It's a different beast. This guy mm. came from independent filmmaking. Is he going to be able to fit in with the Disney way of working? Um, so there was a lot of convincing I had to do on that day. And you know, a lot of it was like going back to my visual effects days. I look, yes, I've not worked in television as a director, but as a visual effects supervisor and a visual effects producer, let me share with you the things that I learned working in television. And I told them all the problems we had, rather than say, oh my God, I had an amazing time. I told them all the issues we had on television shows and what I did as a VFX supervisor and a VFX producer to make it work creatively for the director and the showrunners, but also make it work creatively for the budget. They loved that. They were like, okay, this is cool. We'll come back with you like, you know, in like in a week's time. And I got the job. And I thought I was just going to direct an episode. I would just be happy just to direct an episode, just come in and play in a while and tell them, no, I've got to direct the frigging pilot. <laughs> They're like, no, you're wow. doing the pilot. I'm like, what? Had no idea how important a pilot was as a director, but you literally set the tone for the entire show. You yeah. work hand in hand with the writers, work hand in hand with the showrunner. And a lot of it was because of all the previews I did and all of the visual material I did in my pitch material. They're like, we may as well, he's done most of the work already. Like, hey, he's done it on spec. We may, you may as well just direct. And I remember on the first day of the shoot, we shot this in Vancouver. So I was in Vancouver for like six months. And this is television. And this is Disney Channel, by the way, just for those listeners. This is not Disney Marvel, but they got the huge budget. So this, you're still on a very tight budget. But 
their tight budget is my luxury believe me and you're right yeah. that's what i'm gonna say on that um but what was interesting on the first day of the shoot i turn around and there's like there's a row of monitors in digital village and there's all these executives just watching they're watching because they're all nervous this is the first time director and i'm pretty sure they had a backup director because that's what you would do and i remember like thinking oh my god i better not f this up like this is like oh and what i did was i just shh shot it like i was shooting the beyond i just like forget this is a disney show just shoot it as you're shooting the beyond so i went in i was doing all my coverage i was making all my days i was communicating to everyone um you know storyboarding in the evening and two in the morning going to the cinema 4d and blocking out some previews showing this to the dp dp's like we don't usually get this kind of stuff like who are you i'm like no i just really want to make this good show so i remember like i was getting ready to go back to london this is like after a month or two months of shooting only supposed to be here for two months like just the pilot the first block so episode one episode two and i remember the producer say listen we're gonna um we're going to um screen it we're gonna screen your pilot i'm like what do you mean you can screen the pilot <laughs> i literally just shot it last week like there's green screen everywhere there's 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 no car it's just like a tennis ball oh, don't worry they get it now remember what i said i was a vfx producer for, and a supervisor for a very 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 long time and when you hear a client goes oh don't worry we get it uh, I don't think they, they, they're going to get it. So um, I remember going into the edit room and this is me being a rookie, like being independent, going into the world of big you know, studio filmmaking. I'm like, can someone just give me an edit machine? I'm going to quickly edit stuff. They're like, you can't do that. First off, this is a union show. <laughs> There's a union rights, union editors and union this, and union that. I'm like, oh, sh- no idea i just thought you just pick up the edit no there's ways of doing things but we love the enthusiasm so what i managed <laughs> to do was um, what i managed to do was convince the editor to like you know do do a cut with me and the edit assistants i'm like oh my god there's edit assistants oh my god like i'm so used to edit my right. own stuff there's like a team of edit assistants by the way and they and they exported a bunch of plates for me i remember ringing up the visual effects company it's an amazing company in in vancouver called atmosphere effects run by this amazing guy called andrew carr um, I was going, hey, Andrew, um, can you just send me the CG car that you have? I'm like, why? You <laughs> don't start visual effects in this until six months' time. We're just on set supervising for you. I'm like, no, I'm going to like just do some temp comps. And I think it's a combination of like from his angle, and we speak about this all the time, but it's a combination of him thinking, is this guy nuts? But also, <laughs> it's quite refreshing to speak to someone that actually is a, that used to be a VFX supervisor that would speak the same language. And I told him I'm going to do some temp comps. It doesn't matter if the car's gray. I just need a frigging geometry. FBX is fine. Because, oh, this is great. And I pretty much slap comp the whole thing in the weekend in After Effects. They screened it on a Monday. The Tuesday, they rip up my ticket and go, no, you're staying here right to the end of the show. I'm like, oh, wow. What am I going to oh. be doing? He goes, you're going to close the show. So it's an eight part show. You're going to do episode seven and eight. I'm like, okay, but that doesn't shoot until like, three months time so what i'm gonna do from now till three months oh you're also an, an ep on the show so you're gonna be a consultant and you're gonna work with the other directors and there's some like amazing directors that you know one of them is um joe menendez who who's done from dust till dawn i'm like oh my god like what and he's the most nicest person ever and um i got to ep the show and all of that was because i wasn't afraid to just go the extra mile and not play by the arm oh, just gonna wait until they ask for something you know if you can draw it draw it i mean i can't draw so i do loads of previous if you could block it out whatever it takes just don't think that you are overstepping just just communicate because your job's a director is to communicate over communicate was the big thing i learned and um and that's how i was able to like end up directing this and now i'm working i'm still doing projects with disney obviously a lot of stuff i can't talk about but you know i've ended up doing a project last year of them no early this year sorry early this year and, um, and I'm constantly working on projects with Disney. There are like a great bunch of execs, the same people that I worked with on, on Fast Lane, like the, the VP of production. So um, yeah, I think the moral of the story is just don't be afraid to to share your ideas. Don't don't like wait or think, oh, it's not ready yet. It's not perfect. Yes, yeah, an, an amazing story of lo- lots of courage and um, I know timing I know is is always key, timing, but yeah. like <laughs> yeah, a, lot of, a lot of courage and willingness to kind of get stuck in and mm. following following what interests you and seeing what tools you have around you. I think it's it's amazing for hopefully people are, are inspired by that. I'm sure they are. I am for sure <laughs> to be to hear this because I, I think a lot of us get into this industry wanting to make our our own stuff and then you get into it and you end up making a lot of other people's stuff. But the, the the drive to to create your own art, I think, is always there. And figuring out like 
know how how to balance that yeah. amongst uh working for other people do you have any kind of thoughts or or advice for anybody on on how to maybe manage your time or how to like you know cram this stuff in because it's it's visual visual yeah. effects is pretty hardcore sometimes yeah. <laughs> the hours it's not nine intense. to five that's no. for sure <laughs> um i think a lot of it is um when i was as i became more experienced as a compositor you know i started to pick projects that i thought i could learn a lot from this you know and i tend to pick projects that were challenging as opposed to like the run in the middle bread and butter like like I can just do this in my, my eyes closed. I just, those kind of projects didn't really interest me because I knew that whatever I pick up from working at the studios, I knew when I come back and do my own stuff, I'd be able to use some of that knowledge to excel myself. You know, a lot of it is a lot of people go, oh, but I don't have time. Like a lot of my visual effects friends who got in the industry yep. for the same reason I did was just, we want to be film directors. You go, yep. oh man, I want to be a film director. I'm like, yeah, we'll go and freaking make something. I know I ain't got time, man. You know, I finish work at like 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. And yeah, it's freaking hard. Like, you know, when you're, especially when you're coming up to crunch mode and delivering a show, in visual effects no matter if it's tv big or small you're still in crunch mode and there's a and as artists we have a passion to get the shots done you know we and don't do like well oh, as well yeah and do it well because yeah, yeah. it's because you're only as good as your last job right and it's very evident yeah. in visual effects when you look at the show reel or your last project so and i always say look here's the thing the way i do it is i do an hour an evening i mm. block out one hour an evening okay so that's what seven hours in a full seven day week right and then you multiply that in four weeks and a year. So you, the, the hours add up. And sometimes I, for that one hour, I'm just exploring, right? Mm. But inside, I know I spent an hour thinking about something that I want to pursue, I want to do. Um, in my case with Project Kronos, I spent a good month or so every evening just going on NASA website, looking at stuff, looking at this image of the Voyager craft or the space shuttle launch. Like, Ooh, I love the smoke on the space shuttle launch, but I don't want to have a space shuttle going off in my film. But I also don't have any experience in Houdini. So why don't I just grab the smoke from that, comp in my CG rocket, which I can build in 3D Max, comp that in as a composite, and I've got my shot. And I was starting to break that down in evening. I wasn't doing any actual comping work or anything in evening. I was just being in the mode. But that is filmmaking. You, know, mm. you don't actually physically have to start picking up a camera and shooting stuff. The, for me, and that's the reputation I end up getting, was it's all in the prep. And I learned that being a VFX supervisor, seeing working with the best directors were the ones I saw were prepped. The ones that were struggling on set or were dealing with a million notes and just were just struggling to get their, make their day were the ones that didn't come as prepped as they should be. And, you know, that can be a form of a shot list. Very important. Yep. Like your, your, your AD is going to ask you that, your, your, your line producer is going to ask you, but most important, your DP is going to ask you that. But for me, the shot list wasn't for those people. For me, the shot list was for me. So like, I know what the hell I'm doing, you know? And a lot of the time, especially in indie filmmaking, you're, you're kind of running gun in it, right? You're kind of making it up, but it's good to have a plan to fall back on. Sometimes I do little mini storyboards. Now I can't storyboard to save my life, but I can do these really cool little matchstick men and then a little bit of a blob. And then that becomes a tree. And that became what you call hazograms. So people started calling them hazograms on set. They're like, <laughs> oh, they're the hazograms. Then... <laughs> They're not a work of art. They're not Ridley Scott grams, but they work. We know where the camera placement is. Like a DP, right. we're like, I know exactly what you want has from this interesting looking drawing. And I was going, shoot it. So that became useful. And then I turned on to do previous. Um, but yeah, the tip is, I would say for anyone is block out an hour a day. Now, granted, not everyone may, circumstances may not have, you may have kids or whatever. Um, then even an hour a week, an hour on a Saturday afternoon, May not sound like a lot because, oh, it's just an hour, man. What am I going to achieve? But in a month, that's four hours of you doing your own stuff. And eventually that becomes something. So time management is a key factor if you want to be in the creative industry while still doing your own thing. And eventually you, end that, you know, those hours become more and more and the hours you spend on other people's work becomes less and less. But you've got to start off with something. And I find a lot of people that I speak to, a lot of my close friends who want to be directors, they get a bit overwhelmed. Because, oh no, I'm going to have to like save and quit my job and then focus on that. Sure, you can. There is no right or wrong way of doing it. But what I found for me was, firstly, I need to continue earning money because I want to yeah. live. But yes. And also, I quite like buying comics. No, but, uh, <laughs> but, but at the same time, not only are you making money for yourself, but also the experience is just as important. It's important to work. And that's why I always say freelancing is a great 
way to build up experience. Like I felt like if I was staff at a facility, I may just be bogged down doing one type of show or I won't have be able to meet various different people. I felt like being a freelancer, I, I worked at nearly every company in Soho, ended up working in Sweden, worked in LA, worked in so many places. And you end up building all your contact networks. And then when a decade later you become a filmmaker, those guys that you've become friends with are now producers or directors or become senior composers. Some of my friends have got their own VFX facility. So all of that, not only are you building knowledge and creative and experience, you're building the network. And that is just as important as doing the creativity. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's um, a lot of, about people and connections as much as it is of people who go through the school wanting to get opportunities that you, they always ask for, for advice for how do you get in and it's yeah. as much as growing their skill sets as also getting in front of people you can have the best skills in the world by yourself and no right. one's going to know until you get in front of people and you start sharing it yeah. I, i'd love to i'd love to ask you um and now we're moving into this this new age of filmmaking and using game engines you you've painted a picture of that journey going back quite a long way you know now yeah. everybody else has caught up with you um but you've been you've been making movies using game engines clearly for a long time yeah. but now that the tools have matured to this point where there's this kind of renaissance going on in filmmaking mm. um i'd love to hear you now what what your thoughts are about where we are at, the, at this moment in time you i know that you use uh, Unreal Engine a lot. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. definitely. I mean, to answer your question, I can just take you back to 2019. Don't worry, it's not going to be a big epic one like I just did before. It's 2019, <laughs> so a lot happened then. Um, but I, I was preparing for my third live action feature, right? Called Luna. So we're going to shoot in Grand Canary. We're casting and everything. Yeah, having done two films on a TV show, you got a little bit more clout now of casting. Yeah, you can have. You're going to ring up ICM or whoever the agent CAN. You can get a conversation now, right? But still, it's tough. And that's another thing I tell everyone: no matter how many movies you make. The journey is still tough. Like I thought, oh, I made two movies. Like I made a TV show for a big network. Like how hard, you know, it should be easy. No, 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 no. You still have to go for it. It's you're constantly hustling. Hustling is just as important as the, the artwork. Um, but no, I was prepping to do my the third live action. And um I started doing previs. I'm like, you know, I don't want to hire a previs company to do stuff. I just wanted this experiment myself before we bring on a previs company, right? And um I level I didn't want to just, I don't want to like download Maya and go through the whole Maya subscription thing because I knew I'd only be using it w once a week. I, I just felt like, you know, I should just hire someone that knows what they're doing with, with Maya a bit better than me. Um, but everyone's talking about this Unreal Engine and um, the manager or the agency who rep me also repped at the time and this awesome director called Wes Ball who would using Unreal for things like his, his show Mouse Guard, uh, which got cancelled eventually. Shame, actually. Um, but yeah, I remember him... Yeah, it's amazing. Um, but he was, he, he was, those people were using this real time tech. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to, I've got some time. I'm just going to download it and see how it goes. I'm giving myself a weekend. If I can get my head around this, then great. I downloaded it, did some tutorials, like a guy called Matt Workman, who's got these amazing YouTube tutorials. I just followed mm -hmm. these tutorials. Within a weekend, I had blocked out a page out of the script, a key action sequence. I'm like, Okay, first off, this don't look like previous. This is I've got lighting, reflection, particles, fully textured stuff, motion blur, and I'm getting all of this from a viewport on my laptop. Whoa, blown! There's like that Neo moment in the Matrix. I'm like, whoa, and I'm like, there's something here. I don't know what it is, but something here. And then beginning of 2020, um, I'm like, you know what? I really want to do a project in Unreal. Um, it's all good trying to make a short film or demo or test, but the real test is doing it in a commercial environment. So this comic book company at the time was talking to directors to do proof of concepts for their comic book um, IPs that we should then go and sell in Hollywood. Because you know, every comic book company now is getting into the world of Hollywood. If you look at like The Boys on Amazon, right? If you look at Umbrella Academy on Netflix, there's tons of comic book adaptations. It's, it's great source material for Hollywood. And so this com comic book company were like, look, you know, pick a comic book and see if you can do it live action. I'm like, can we do animation? They're like, uh, animation's gonna be a lot of a lot of work. You need a big studio. I'm like, I think I can get it done with my team. They're like, mm. all right, well, this is all you've got, so <laughs> you better be good. Um, and we did this thing called Battle Suit, which was very, you know, it's our very first animated um, pilot. It was like, you know, it was a like 15 minute um, episode for what will be eventually a show later on. And um, we released it. It got a lot of traction. Epic 
you know, promoted it and video promoted it. And again, having my marketing connects help push the push the word out. But now, granted, when you watch Battlesuit, it's not like amazing to today's standard, but it got people thinking like, hey, this guy just made a 15 minute pilot episode all in Unreal Engine science fiction with a, with a team of like three. That was the story. And all of a sudden, like all of the studios and executives that were usually saying, no, you're a live action director that does vis- that uses visual effects. The animation world is a whole different thing. Has that like, you know you need to like know how to storyboard and do animatics. You need to be the, the world of DreamWorks or Pixar. Those guys are like, whoa, hang on a sec. We should have this conversation now. This is like, what is this real time thing? And it completely opened the doors for me. And at that same time, the unfortunate events of COVID happened. So obviously we weren't going to make live action. And I remember telling my producing partner Paula, I was going, you know what? I think we can make an animated film here. And she was like, yeah, really? I'm like, yeah. I mean, we did Battlesuit 15 minutes for X amount, for X amount of time. You know, if we do the maths, we could potentially do this. And I thought, this is all very naive. Like, oh, you just multiply it. It'll be fine. <laughs> it's real time. <laughs> um, but what was interesting was uh, we started getting calls from various people. And um, one company called Pathfinder, who, um, who are now part of um, Funcom, and 10 cents and um they like look we're looking for directors to pitch on this um video game ip to do an adaptation would you pitch on it i'm like absolutely so they sent me the game mutant year zero it was a playstation 4 game stick at my playstation the first logo comes up well obviously a you know sony playstation and so on and then it was that made in unreal so my light bulb moment was like i've got an idea here i call up the producers could you hook me up with the game developers they're like why do you want a game developer for your, your, your job is to figure out how to adapt this i'm like yeah i know I want to use the assets from the game. <laughs> like what? Right. Okay, fine. Whatever this guy wants. So hook me up to these, the game developers in um, Sweden called the bearded ladies. They're not bearded ladies. They're guys, but it's called bearded ladies. Cool name. And I'm like, Hey guys, look, this is the pitch. I want to do it like this. Mad Max meets this and that. And um, yeah, I can say, cause it came out in IGN last year, the announcement. Um, and they're like, yeah, we, we love it. We love it. Great. Cool. You're clearly a gamer. Off you go. I'm like, yeah, but before I go, can you give me like all your assets? And the look, they were like, huh what um, th- these are blueprints you won't know i'm like don't worry we'll figure it out so they, they gave me a google drive of like i don't know like 500 gigs worth of data which took us like all night to download we downloaded it and now it wasn't plug and play just for those listeners thinking oh yeah bought the asset plug and play no i mean this is game assets okay it's all you know a character is a head an arm a body is all connected via blueprints and code it wasn't like you just buy an asset from turbo squid and it's rigged it wasn't like that but what was really cool was all the art direction was done. All of all of the things you usually get notes on was pretty much done. You know, this is a company, a games company that spent three or four years building the law, building the world and the characters. I didn't have to worry about that. All I had to worry is how do I get this into Unreal Engine 424 at the time and get it rendered cinematically. So it cut down my production massively. And I spent, you know, we had a TD called Ronan, who's now over at NPC. And... Um, he was amazing because he he figured out how to like extract the blueprints and really put it together in Maya. And we used things like iClone to do all the animation for facial caption stuff. And within like three months, we had done a sizzle trailer and we released IGN, this big games website, released it. And all of a sudden I'm getting a reputation for being the director that could direct animated films. And I had, and this is to go back to your question. Like, did you have a clear path for what you wanted to be? <laughs> no, I didn't know I was going to direct animated films, let alone in a game engine. But that's where the circumstance, you grab an opportunity, you know? And that's the thing I always tell all of my filmmaker friends is like, but I could have been that, I could have been that director where I'm a director now. I don't need to touch visual effects tools. You know, I'll just hire a VFX company. I left VFX, so I don't have to do that. I'm a director. Well, the word director has changed massively now because my job as a director today is I spend a lot of time in Unreal. I spend a lot of time with a VCAM. You know, I'm directing my team, you know, my asset builders, my coders and so on. But as a director, I'm much more hands-on. I have time to experiment and play. And I think that's where that revolution of real time is really accelerated and giving the tools into the filmmaker's hands. Because I remember being a VFX supervisor and sitting you know, on the big animated show and looking, sitting next to the director and the director's biting his nose because, oh my God, there's so many things I want to change. But the producer over there is saying, no, you can't change that rock. You can't change the position of that. That's signed off. You can't go back to layout. And now I'm in a position where like, if I've got notes of like move a tree, I'm not going to tell my artist who's this amazing character designer to move a friggin' tree. I'm going to move the tree. I'm going to do those typical director 
pixel effing notes, as you call them, right, in, in, the, in the industry. I'll do those notes. I'm going to allow my artists to focus on stuff that I can't do or can't do well. And it's liberating because I didn't have time to experiment. I have time to find the story. Like all of the animated projects I've done, a lot of it has literally been creatively done in real time where I figured out what the pacing was and really not worry about, oh my God, this is going to be locked. I can work in a more agile environment. So for those listeners don't know what agile, agile is kind of like a, a, product, a project management methodology. You have waterfall, which is step-by-step. Step. So most, most, animated films are like you do your animatics sign up you do your layout you do your lighting and if you go back it's going to be very expensive and with agile you just bash it out very roughly put it in the edit and then you keep iterating 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 so for me there's no previs when i'm in an unreal engine scene because my first block out essentially would be previs it's actually the first version of the shot and then we just update that same shot that's mind-blowing creatively but production-wise i'm able to stay on budget and really make stuff that look bigger than what it is so yeah so that's um that's a revolution unreal and that's how i've managed to carve a career as a filmmaker now because i decided to learn at all amazing yeah like you say you can you can actually reach in there yourself whereas previously what people would have to do with the director would have to travel to the visual effects facility (laughs) stand behind the shoulder of, of an artist communicate with them yeah they, they have to interpret what they're saying and do it or or just tell them over the wire give them some notes and then wait and then see the interpretation of those notes and then say um no that's not what i was thinking then wait again exactly like you exactly. can actually you can actually jump in and have your friends with you other film filmmakers yeah. the dp as well yeah. being in there and being able to frame shots up is it's i i really um always trying to encourage filmmakers to um to have a go and, and not to think that they necessarily need somebody else to i think it's I very agree. encouraging to hear you talking about this um the 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 it's not easy you know it's not completely <laughs> completely simple to jump in but it is possible now whereas yeah. before i think it wasn't yeah um something you you mentioned um which i'd i'd love to touch on again is that the having come from from games and having made a lot of movies and games and then having I'm talking about making a movie and using assets from the game um do you have any thoughts on that when i was working on lion king we were making essentially a big video game of the movie yeah. and i was thinking well can we just can we do something else with this could could we not like repurpose this and make it make a game or an interactive experience out of this as well because all of that was just going to die at the end of the right. previous, at the end of right. virtual production. But we put all this effort into it. Could we not make something else with this? Do you have any kind of thoughts on on how these two yeah. worlds are, are colliding? A- absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting because, like, I think by the end of this month and first week of December, you're going to see a lot of um, press coming out on my current project, which is an animated film called Rift, which we've been in production since December last year. Um, well, officially January this year. Um, you know, we were Epic Mega Grant recipient as well. So the guys at Epic really helped us out on that. Really like amazing support. And um, and we you know, we spent time, we built all our assets, we all our characters, spent a lot of time, you know, creating that well distinct look. And you're right, you're like, oh man, you know, we could do a spin-off animated film or an animated show because we have the assets, which you know, which is great for like potential investors who want to invest in our next project. But what was really interesting was this was like a couple of months ago, well, four, three or four months ago, we're doing a car chase sequence. And I wanted, I didn't want to animate the car because I knew suspension and things like that. It's, it's quite hard to get right unless you're a really good animator. So I'm like, why can't I just like rig the car, you know, in Unreal and apply the physics system and then I drive around the car. So Andrea, my head of CG, set it up for me and we started driving the car around. I'm like, this is a friggin' video game. Wait, why are we making a friggin' video game? And it, what started off as a joke ended up becoming a weekend <laughs> game jam where myself, Andrea, and Sam, Samuel Rebello, Sam is this amazing um, junior artist who's now not junior anymore after like spending so much time with us. Um, we we put we put a level together really rough just to see what we what we can get, just for, you know, for shits and giggles, right? And we were like, hang on a sec. Yes, it's rough, but we have all our assets built. We didn't have to create crazy amount of LODs, level of details. Like, you know, you know, back in the day, you had to create low-res versions of your tree and, you know, use level of detail to really pop them up when you're up close in for high-res. 
we didn't do any of that. We just took our assets, dump it into the game Unreal Engine project, which is a separate project, and just ran with it. You know, the only thing we tweaked was the way the rigs were working. But again, that was a super easy thing to do within a couple of hours. So we were able to like get the Xbox controller, plug it into our PC and play the game and start shooting. There's collision, there's bullet tracers and all the stuff that bullet tracers, explosions, we had done in a movie already. We had our environments and we're like, we can make a video game. So yeah, you're going to see the announcement like second week of December, the video game trailer is coming out. And that was because we were able to take what we have already and really amortize it even more and appreciate it even more. But also as a, as a producer, my intellectual property, which is Rift, I'm able to increase its longevity. I'm like, now, not only is going to get a movie out of this and potential spinoffs, I get all my marketing key artwork. I get all the poster work, all the trailer work. I get additional moments, but also I create a new experience and do things that I can't do in a 90-minute movie. And that was the thing we, we, we made sure as a team was let's not make a game because we can, right? Let's have a good reason. And I looked at all of the stuff that had been redlined, that stuff, you know, pages on the script that we just shelved away. as like, that's crazy. We're never going to get this done. And the movie deals with multiverses, okay? So the video game, branch narrative and multiverse physics defying action is perfect for a video game. And that's what we end up doing. So yeah, and that's where the cross-pollination comes in very effectively because now it doesn't feel like we're working on two projects. It really feels like we're working on one project. It's just one has an interactive element. And a lot of the time we find is that we're doing stuff in the game. We're like, oh my God, we should migrate that into the film project because that's so cool. And we're doing stuff in the film. We're like, that should go in the game and vice versa. It's, it's such a great way of working, but it just becomes more exciting because as a producer now, you're not just selling your animated film, you're creating this whole world which can be spin off into VR experiences, into an app, whatever your, your mind desires. And now I'm not just a filmmaker, I'm a business person, I'm a producer. I'm thinking of ways of, of like monetizing my, my, my assets, monetizing my work and my team's work, you know, things like the metaverse and all of those things all plug into nicely into Unreal. So I think, you know, as a, you know, tools can not only allow you to, you know, make your dreams come true from your mind, but also can influence your business decision-making skills as well. And I feel like, you know, the fact that we have an, a company called Hazimation, which is making <laughs> animated films for, for TV and features, a video game, and also content for the metaverse. I did not see that coming. <laughs> I really didn't. That's amazing. Yeah, it's um, it's really it's really cool to hear that you know it's essentially you, once you built your your world building either way in games Absolutely. or in film, and once you've once you've built a world as a director, you are exploring that world, and and now making a game, you're allowing other people to explore it. Maybe makes me think maybe there's even an extension to the game where people can start to make their own films Absolutely. out of your. Film, oh yes absolutely absolutely very cool um as you mentioned the, the metaverse there's a mm. hot topic for for today you know lots of buzz around yeah that idea um can you talk about what your idea of what that is yeah definitely i mean a metaverse is a huge thing but for me you know the way i would sum it up it's it's like an immersive version of the internet it's a virtual place where anything can happen creatively. If you want to create your own country and monetize that with your own digital village and digital population, digital currency, you can do that in the metaverse. It's like there are no gatekeepers. You know, you can essentially become whatever you are. And it's kind of cliche, but it is very much like Ready Player One, if you think about it. You know, and I think, you know, we're very early stage of the metaverse. At the moment, you've got place, you know, things like Roblox, right? And you've got cryptocurrencies and NFTs. And these are all very early stage at the moment. Like, you know, no one knows where they're going to go. But we're in a foundation now where creatives of any level who can be bothered to read up on it and download stuff and try things out, you can essentially carve your own career, your own lifestyle. And I think the metaverse essentially is carving a lifestyle with creative art, music, technology. Well, I've got a good friend who, uh, who owns a company called um, Wristband, which was part of a company called um, Overview. And um, this guy called Roman Rapak, and he's doing virtual concerts. He was in a band and now he's, 
he's diversified. He's now he's telling me he's got access to more audiences because he doesn't just get music lovers. He's getting people like in the video game space, the film world. But he's able to interact with everyone in his virtual space and become an own avatar and be creative. Like one day I'm going to be this and the other day I'm going to be that. And I think, you know, to me, it could be a place where there are no rules creatively for what you want to do. And that 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 is mind boggling. It's scary. But at the same time, I think it's going to create a new generation of artists that but also just people in general. You know, I reckon in the future, you'll be able to live in the metaverse in a way that you can like pay your bills and create a lifestyle in the metaverse. Um, or it could be a good way of bridging cultures together, which we still have a problem in this day and age where cultures are still quite separate. The metaverse could be a way where it cross-pollinates and blends seamlessly where everyone is literally the same. And I think that's exciting. Right. Yeah. It can be a good way to bring people together. And I think so. Just a, like art and music thing. does. Yeah. 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 And as it's, as you mentioned, it already is bringing those other industries into this industry, all of these Absolutely. things which are colliding the world of film and, yeah live events and music oh, yeah. and games they're all they've all been given a home where they can all live together at the exactly. same time for the yes. first time. yeah it's yeah super exciting <laughs> do you have a, any kind of tips for anyone wanting to dip a toe into you know creating um, something for the metaverse or something in in real time the world of real time I, you know what it's i get asked that a lot and it really is the first step is just to download unreal engine just mm. download it. Now, you know, I get a lot of people ask me, how did you learn Unreal Engine? Because it's overwhelming, right? There's just so much tutorial, so much documentation. That, and I always ask, what is it you want to get out of Unreal Engine? That's the question you need to ask yourself. For me, I wanted to know how to move a camera, how to bring an asset in there, and how to render out a quick time to put my edit. Those are essentially my three or four things. Once I had that, I'm like, ooh, now how do I apply animation on there? And how do I tweak my lighting? Got that. And then next, the next few days, how do I apply particles and how do I get better rendering? You do an increment stage, but all of my requirements were me as a director wanted to be in Unreal. Now, if I was um, a character artist, I think my requirements would be a bit different. They'd be like, okay, how do I get my assets in there? How do I, how do I take the shaders to another level? Right. Or if I'm a coder, how do I use blueprints to really provide really cool interaction or even technical animators? How do I use blueprint to take my animation and make it more interactive? Everyone has different, even music guys, you know, how does audio work? How does spatial audio work in sequencer? Right. And I think those are things you need to make a list of things that you want to learn. I would never advise anyone to just download it and just, learn it because you can't you can't just download it and learn unreal no one knows unreal engine inside out you know it's every yep. day there's like new things coming out but what you do learn is how do you make unreal engine work for you that's the most important thing i'll tell everyone when it, it's like of any tool set whether it's maya blender c40 whatever it is how do you make it work for you and i think that's the most important thing so yeah just download it and just just whatever you want to do just try it out so it sounds like what you're saying is is apply it to something that's going to be immediately useful to you. So yeah, or, don't or don't set out already. Yeah, don't, I mean, if you're a game developer, don't set out to make the next Fortnite like within a weekend. I mean, let's just be simple. Get a cube in there. Don't even bother texturing. Get a cube in there. Load up some of the templates that comes free with it, and start reverse engineering the templates, or just just get a result. I think the most important thing is the, the second you get a result and it's not hard to get a result very quickly when you're doing something in Unreal because it's, it's not like when you're in a, you know, like a Maya or a Max where you have to do a lot of work to get, a, to get an output. You know, you're in real time. But focus on getting results. doesn't matter how, how crappy it may look or how basic. It's really, as an artist learning, it's about, you know, making progress. And that's the same ethos I take when I'm making movies. Like, don't worry about getting the perfect shading on the tree. Stick a grayscale tree in there. I know it's a frigging tree. Just get it in the shot. And then we can focus on making it better afterwards. Right. Yeah, and your, um, your story really pointed towards that of listening to, to what really spoke to you and being able to see something and, and feel something and feel excited like you, you were when you first used Unreal yeah. and you're like, wow, yeah. there's really something here that it seems like with you, I mean, your, your, uh, your passion and spirit is very, very palpable. And it seems like <laughs> you know, that you let that guide you a lot where you, where you see that excitement. Yeah, that seems to be what guides you on your journey. Also, but also just to say like, it's been hard as well. Like there's been moments where I'm like, 
things don't work. And that's the thing people have to remember. You're like, yes, Unreal Engine is amazing. It would do all these great things. But you're using a game engine that is constantly being developed. Okay, so that's a big disclaimer you have to remember. Things are not always going to work. Things are going to break. But here's the cool thing that I loved about this is that whenever something broke, I just went onto the online community and someone's figured it out. Now, yep. fine, we know if I was to look back how, when I try to get into live action filmmaking, or even back then when I tried to get into visual effects, when I was starting out in visual effects, there wasn't that much of a community out there. There was a huge community of game developers, you know, sharing stuff. I remember Blur Studios releasing their Blur plugins for 3D Max. There was that community there. But in terms of like getting into visual effects for big movies and television or, or live action directed, there wasn't really a community on there. You had to be, you had to know the right circles. Was I find with virtual production on Unreal Engine, there's such a huge community that, you know, I would say I've made more friends in the virtual production community than I have in visual effects in terms of how quickly I've made them. So <clears throat> massive community out there. And don't be afraid to ask. I think that's a big problem I find in the creative industry um, still sometime today where people are afraid to ask it. They think they may sound silly or they should know it. Man, I'm constantly asking. In fact, the thing that I now go on is don't be afraid to say, I don't know. Just say, right. I don't know. Can you help me? As opposed to, yeah, yeah, I know what that is. Well, do I know what it is? Google. Just don't be afraid to ask. And the people out there are most likely going to help you because that's what's happened. In, in fact, this morning I had issues with something. I just went onto the virtual production site on, on, on Facebook and someone had solved it. So, um, yeah, there's a community spirit. And I think that's a big thing. Yeah, that's that uh, group is 50,000 and growing. So <laughs> tons of people from all over the world, all kinds of different yeah, backgrounds. There's yeah. filmmakers, there's game developers in there. Absolutely. There's everybody's. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things that excites me about it too, is it's become more collaborative. It, the, yeah. the actual process of being going through making some movies in virtual production, um, the suddenly as a visual effects artist, you're allowed to be on set and be yeah. in the action rather than yeah. being kind of shut away in that dark room and maybe you might get some notes and that might be the mo <laughs> most interactive it gets but now you can actually you can all play in the same sandbox yeah, yeah, yeah. super super exciting time well has thank you this is a, a total pleasure to have you on today thank my, you my my pleasure absolutely my pleasure uh thanks thanks for, it was lovely chatting to you i know it's been long overdue so yeah yeah well yeah, I really, really appreciate you coming on and being on the podcast and sharing your experience and your wisdom with our listeners. I've, I've been very inspired by it, as I always am when I talk. Thanks. And um, I'm sure everybody else has as well. Um, and yeah, just to, to wrap on the episode, also want to thank everybody out there for tuning in. Thanks to our listeners. Um, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and stay tuned for future episodes. We'll have another one coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, and yeah. Thank you. Thank you all very much for Thanks. being with us today.